0: Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression
1: with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome once again to Free Expression, with me, Jerry Baker, the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, where we talk about some of the big issues facing us politically, economically, and elsewhere. This week, fascinating discussion, looking forward to, with former Attorney General William Barr, who is out with a memoir called One Damn Thing After Another, Memoirs of an Attorney General. Mr. Barr, of course, served twice as Attorney General. He was the 77th and 85th Attorney Generals of the United States, first under President George H.W. Bush. And then we all remember... Uh, very vividly for the last two years of the Donald Trump administration from 2019 to the end of 2020. Mr. Barr's memoir is a story of his life, of his uh, upbringing in uh, New York, his turn to the law, becoming a lawyer, and then, of course, serving in that uh, George H. W. Bush administration and serving in private practice. Much of the attention inevitably has focused on what Mr. Barr has to say about his time serving with Donald Trump. And we're going to talk a lot about that. But I do also want to say the book contains a lot of fascinating observations and uh, insight into Mr. Barr's philosophy and what he thinks about the, some of the challenges that... Uh, we face at the moment is in with regard to the uh, attacks on freedom of religion and freedom of speech uh, and other freedoms from the progressive left. And I do want to get into some of those uh, larger questions with him. But inevitably, as I say, a lot of the focus has been on what Mr. Barr had to say with his book that's published this week, has to say about um, former President Donald Trump, in particular, what he said about uh, Mr. Trump's behavior after the 2020 election. And uh, Mr. Barr, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Sure.
2: Glad to do it, Jerry.
1: I'm going to start then, if I may, with this, um, with what you say uh, about President Trump. You say right at the end of uh, at the end of the book. Uh, you are harshly critical. You, you say a lot of positive things about Donald Trump. I think we should say that and we will talk a little bit more about that. But at the end of the book, you are very critical of uh, Mr. Trump. And you say that particularly his behavior after the election and up to and including and after January the 6th, uh, you said Trump's shown neither the temperament nor the persuasive powers to provide the kind of positive leadership that is needed. And you're very critical. You say he went off the rails I- I- in many ways. And you're critical of his entire approach. I should say, of course, President Trump has shot back today, Monday, accusing you of being saying you were a coward, saying that you bowed to the radical left, that you refused to take seriously or examine seriously his allegations of uh, electoral fraud and that he really won the election. So having seen now what uh, Mr. Trump perhaps inevitably thinks of your own observations, Attorney General Barr, what do you have to say in response to that? Well,
2: you know, my my criticism of of Trump uh, after the election was that uh, he would not listen to any Advice. He would only listen to people who were telling him exactly what he wanted to hear. And that was a change because before that, while he was difficult to deal with and you frequently had to battle a long time, his advisors and cabinet secretaries could, you know, get him to adjust, you know, whatever he wanted to do to make it more uh, appropriate and, and less impulsive and excessive. But once the election was over, uh, he just wouldn't listen to anybody. And he went hell for leather on this idea that the election was stolen from the very beginning. I mean, that evening he went down and said there was major fraud underway. And there were no reports of major fraud uh, that were underway. And, And I told him, any specific incredible allegations of fraud we'll look into. And we did. And you know there was nothing to them. They were easily uh, explained or or disproven. You you know a number of them still circulate today. In fact, you know earlier in January the president trotted out you know the idea that there were more people who voted in Philadelphia than there were registered voters. That's simply completely false. The turnout in Philadelphia was basically in line with, in fact, a little bit lower than the increases in turnout around the country and in Pennsylvania. So I don't know where he's getting all this stuff from, but We were looking at it and I was telling him that there was nothing to it. Now, you know, one of the things, Jerry, here is that there's a lot of nuance as to what exactly is being claimed. In fact, although the president kept on talking about fraud, most of the legal pleading weren't saying that there was fraud. Fraud is where votes are counted that don't correspond to a legitimate voter, either because they're dead or because they just aren't registered voters or where legitimate votes are eliminated and that didn't happen uh, on any scale in this election and the election results accurately reflected the votes of qualified voters and as you say in the book the that wasn't even
1: the basis of the legal claims that the trump team were making was it they were the, right. the, the cases most of the cases they were bringing were not about any with it, didn't didn't even a- allege any specific instance of fraud
2: like that it's about something else right most of them were uh, things that the states weren't following the rules, that they were not allowing the Republican uh, observers close enough, or that applications weren't filed for absentee ballots in Wisconsin and so forth. Now, those things are violations of rules that are meant to prevent fraud, and it's not good that they're not followed, but that doesn't mean you get to change the votes. You still have to prove that there was, in fact, fraud as a result of that. So let's take, for example, something that I think will turn up, which was there were, and I say in the book, there were probably violations of harvesting. Harvesting is where campaign workers go out and collect ballots from people. In many states, that's unlawful, but some permit it. It's a very bad practice, and it does open the door to fraud. And if someone went out and illegally harvested some ballots, that's a violation. They can be punished for that and are. But you don't automatically throw out the ballots they collect. You still have to show that unqualified voters voted or people were bribed to vote and so forth. So there is a distinction between not following the rules, which is what the states have to police, and actual fraud, which is something the department does have jurisdiction over. We looked at claims of fraud, and they just weren't there. And as you remember, there was a lot of emphasis for five weeks or four weeks at least. They just hammered away on the idea that the machines uh, were rigged. And as I said to the president, I said, you know, you only have five or six weeks for your legal team to make a case for fraud. And they spent almost all the time on this preposterous idea about the voting machines, which is simply false. So you've pissed away all your time. Yeah. Do you think that...
1: Uh, as you say, um, repeated despite the repeated claims of, and, you know, electoral machines or truckloads of votes suddenly being discovered, which all were investigated and, and actually came to nothing. Do you think, on the larger picture of the election, though, that and this does relate to some of those cases that they did take to court, that perhaps the, that the rules were relaxed so much because under the auspices of accommodating as many votes as possible in the unusual circumstances of the pandemic, do you think that there was, if there were not, not this isn't fraud, as but as you, exactly as you say, that states, famous, I think it was a famous case of Pennsylvania, the way the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled for a big change in eligibility, I think, for timing of absentee ballots. The, the broader context of the election, do you think the complaint there that it wasn't really fair, that the kind of election was in a wider sense unreliable because of the way in which
2: those rules were managed or changed? Do you think that's a reasonable allegation? Um, I'm not sure what unreliable is really means in that context but i well in the sense of
1: whether whether it really genuinely reflected the the actual you know the the people who came out to vote because the rules were relaxed yeah I, I,
2: i mean the people who cast the votes i think the results were effectively accurate but here's the thing there are a couple of things going on here number one i said when i was first confirmed look We're a very closely divided country, the stakes are high, and we have to protect the integrity of the election, because if people come not to trust the uh, election results, we're going to be in in deep trouble in this country. And that means emphasizing steps to ensure integrity. Now, once what happened in this election is that there was frequently a reckless putting aside of anti-fraud measures and, and measures meant to assure integrity. or diluting them. And when you do that, whether or not there's fraud, a substantial part of the country is not going to trust the outcome. And so it is in and of itself very bad for the body politic to be diluting these safeguards when we are so closely divided and when the stakes are so high. Then there's a second set of issues, which I think, again, is short of fraud, where People use their political power in certain states to skew the playing field, to give their party the advantage. And some of it may be simple stuff about hours and, you know, the location of ballot drops and things like that. But it may go to some of the stuff that's recently come to light with Facebook, you know, using corporate funds on get out the vote and maybe skewing it to help particular Democratic districts. That is something that has to be looked into. So, there are these issues of skewing the playing field, uh, and some people refer to that as being rigged, because the word rigged is not a self defining term, but to differentiate it from the idea of fraud. And, you know, there were some of these things done in the election. Those are done. In all elections, but I think given where we are as a country and the temper of the country, we have to be careful about allowing those kinds of things to happen because they undercut people's confidence in the election. But the line between that and illegality, you know, is, is where, you know, the Department of Justice is obviously focused and specifically whether there's fraud in an election. And that we didn't see. You know, a lot of the allegations were outright fraud. I mean, it was that the, the machines were changing ballots, you know, that 20,000 ballots made of bamboo paper came over from Asia and were insinuated into the Arizona count and all that stuff. This was all complete lunacy. It was lunacy. None of that happened.
1: Do you think, though, you, you, you do you do think, though, that Joe Biden was fair, not only lawfully but fairly elected president of the United States. You're confident of, in the outcome of the election result in that sense.
2: Well, as I said, you know, you can quarrel about the fairness of some of the rule changes, but I think he was lawfully elected and it, the results were not dictated or controlled by fraud. You know, a couple of things give me confidence in that. One, everything that was that was raised by... The president's team was just obviously wrong. And the whole premise initially was that, you know, especially in the the big city bastions like Detroit or Philadelphia, Milwaukee, that, you know, there were sort of boiler rooms of people cranking out all these extra ballots didn't happen. The cities basically behaved as they always behaved. In fact, Trump did a little bit better in those cities than he did before. There was no big upsurge in vote. In fact, the you know, the turnout was in line. And so the, the idea that these f- votes were fabricated and dumped into the process is simply not true. The votes that were cast are correlated to registered and lawful voters, correlated in the sense that, you know, there's not some unexplained 20,000 votes that showed up somewhere. When you look at the voting, the actual votes, it's quite obvious why he lost. All this stuff to me is a little bit of a sideshow because when you look at the votes, he lost in the suburbs. The urban vote was pretty much as it always was. The rural vote was more in favor of Trump. He picked up stuff there, but the numbers were not great because of the the distribution of population. But where the real difference was was in the suburbs. The main thing there was the defection of Republican voters and independent voters who otherwise would lean Republican. So let's take Arizona, for example. You know, your two main counties are Maricopa and Pima. It appears that 75,000 Republican-leaning voters who voted Republican otherwise voted against Trump. There was ticket splitting. Trump lost the state by 10,000. Well, when you have 75,000 Republican defections, that explains the result. Those are the two big power counties in the state. And here's something I want to emphasize. Trump ran behind the Republican ticket in these battleground states, including Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. He ran 60,000 votes weaker than the Republican slate of of House congressional candidates and even House Assembly candidates in the state. So when you have 60,000 Republicans coming out to vote for the Republican ticket and they vote against him and you're running weaker than the Republican ticket, that's not a way to win a national election. Same thing happened in Pennsylvania. He ran about 60,000 votes behind. Just to put this in focus... When Ronald Reagan ran for re-election, he got, in Pennsylvania, 470,000 more votes than the Republican ticket. That is a populist. That's somebody who wins big-time national elections. If you're running weaker than the average Republican ticket in battleground states, you're going to lose
1: broaden out here and look at looking at that period from the election and Trump's refusal to accept the result, continuing to f- refusal to accept the result, the events of January the 6th, and to this day, his rejection of the results. The, the peaceful transfer of power is one of, one of the defining features of a democracy. Right. And we kind of got there in the end. But my question is, do you take a sanguine view and say, look, the guardrails held and in the end, you know, democracy prevailed? Or, or do you take a more concerned view that we came perilously close to losing that fundamental tenet of a democratic system.
2: I'm a little bit more on the sanguine side partly because it was such a clownish exercise. The whole thing was sort of a farce. I think the president acted irresponsibly by pushing that, you know, by being so emphatic and and when anybody sort of put something on the internet, some kind of information that was actually false, but made it seem like there was fraud, it would be picked up by the president and his crews if it was gospel. They were sort of casting about for anything that would cast out on the election. That's not an appropriate posture for the president of the United States who has to uphold the Constitution. And uh, so I, I was very disturbed by that. But I also felt that the system is such that there was very little he could actually do about it at the end of the day, outside the normal process, you know, filing lawsuits and trying to get states to do audits and those kinds of things. Once the states certified, which was on December 14th, and and that's the day I resigned, that was it, effectively, once the states certified their votes there really was no way of that being set aside. And the president's idea of this thing on January 6th was harebrained. You know, I mean, I guess the, the worst that could have happened with the vice president went along with it. But, uh, you know, I think the, the legal advice he got was solid and he did the right thing.
1: If he'd listened to the famous John Eastman
2: right. memo, it, things would have gone different. Right. But what struck me is, I mean, you don't have to be a lawyer to read the Eastman memo and realize it has to be wrong. I mean, <laughs> so, so, but it was obviously wrong. And then the idea of having this, this rally and talking about going up to the hill to stop the steel and all that stuff, it was grossly irresponsible. But at the end of the day, once the thing was certified, I didn't really see a practical way about how it would be undone. And I, and the military wasn't going to come out onto the street, but the president took it pretty far he wasn't uh, listening to sound people. One of the things that bothered me was there were a lot of strange people who had no government responsibility hanging around the Oval Office whispering in his ear and uh, coming up with all these uh, stories and tactics. And it was a little bit disturbing to see all that happen.
1: And yet, I think think I'm right in saying, I don't don't think you've expressed support for his impeachment. And and of course, he was impeached by the House, but then the Senate voted not to convict him. Do you think that the Senate came to the Right decision?
2: Yes, you know, for two reasons. You know, one, I'm not so sure, you know, I'm, I'm dubious that the impeachment applies to someone who's already left office, but that's an easy answer. But beyond that, I think we have to be very careful about, uh, tr- you know, saying that it is a uh, high crime and misdemeanor to to voice disapproval and disagreement and and appeal from a vote because people can, you know, there can be disputes over votes. Uh, you know, we had Bush v. Gore. So to say, you know, that it's somehow wrong by opposing it can, can somehow be a high crime or misdemeanor. To me, the dividing line is violence. And right. uh, if the president... Yeah, if the president had been part of a plot to use violence to stop the... Account, then we'd be talking about, you know, potential criminal act. There was no evidence that he was directly involved in that. But don't
1: you think his continuing rhetoric after the election, that the election had been stolen from you, the people, this was terrible, you had to take it back, you had to take your country back. That that entire from November early on was right up to right up to the rally on January the sixth, don't you think that his entire posture and his entire language was an encouragement to people? He was telling them that something unconstitutional and fraudulent had happened
2: and that They needed to write it. Right. So there's two things there. I mean, one, you know, you'd have to show that he didn't believe that, you know, that he knew that that was not true. Uh, I'm not sure that would be possible. More importantly, because of the First Amendment, we give people broad latitude when it comes to to speech and, you know, those kinds of uh, calls to action and so forth. You have to really cross a line to be accused of inciting violence or an insurrection and I haven't seen anything that he said that I think would meet the legal definition of incitement.
1: Is criminal incitement necessary for impeachment? I mean, impeachment is a political process. Would you say that it would have to you'd have to have hard evidence of a crime in order for him to be impeached or would it just be enough for him to demonstrate such a kind of reckless disregard for the constitutional procedures that that would be enough even if it didn't rise to the level of an actual crime?
2: Well, you know, what is necessary for impeachment is really a political question and you're right that Technically, you know, members of Congress can treat something that's not a crime as a basis for impeachment. But the question to me is, why didn't I agree with his impeachment? And, and that's because I think, impeach, apart from the fact that he'd already left office, I think using impeachment in that kind of context potentially goes down a slippery slope of chilling the First Amendment rights, of people to contest elections and so forth, unless they cross a certain line. And and I didn't see any evidence at that point that he crossed the line. Let's take a
1: quick break there. We'll be back with more of my conversation with former Attorney General Bill Barr straight after this.
0: This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.
1: We're back with former Attorney General Bill Barr talking about his new book, One Damn Thing After Another. You close the book with, um, again, as this is quite well known now, it's got a lot of coverage in the last few days. As I said earlier, with a very sharp criticism of Trump, but it's also fair to say that you're actually, you defend Trump a lot. You defend Trump through, through the book. Um, you strongly defend him against a lot of the fictions that were around the Russia collusion allegations. Uh, you defend him, you know, understandably against, you know, against the criticisms and against the attacks that came from not just the media, but within, you know, in many ways within his own administration, you defend his record in many of the things that he did is in terms of of his judicial appointments, in terms of a lot of his economic and foreign policy achievements, it's a very balanced assessment. But you do come to this harsh criticism at the end. I'm wondering that when you say those things about him at the end, and in particular when when you say that or you say he certainly shouldn't be the candidate for the Republicans in 2024, you know, a lot of people say right from the start that Trump was not fit for office. That he was that that sooner or later something like the post-election January 6th thing was kind of bound to happen because that's in his character. Do you do you do you do you think? that there's do you think he was do you think you think now he shouldn't be president but do you think his character made him fit for office did he have the honesty and the integrity and the decency to be
2: president um elections are binary choices and uh We all have in mind, perhaps, the platonic ideal of what a president should be, you know, honest, a lot of moral probity and so forth. But very many presidents don't measure up to that. And and the question in any election is, you know, of these two people, who would be the best president? Uh, So... You know, I would have preferred somebody else. I backed other candidates uh, for the nomination in 2016. Uh, I personally believe Hillary Clinton was a weak candidate, very disliked, and was beatable. And I'm not sure that the only candidate that could have beaten Hillary was Trump. But he did run, and once he got the nomination, I supported him because I felt that he was superior, but not only in policy, but probably even in character. To Hillary Clinton. Do you still
1: think, having worked for him for two years, and Hillary Clinton for all of her flaws, do you still think? I mean, frankly, and by the way, it's not beyond the beyond the bounds of possibility that we might have Hillary versus Trump again in twenty twenty four. Would you still make the same choice?
2: I probably would, because you know, as I as I said today uh, on a show, that uh, I think the greatest threat to the United States is is the progressive agenda and the increasingly totalitarian temper of progressivism in the United States. And it's hard for me to conceive uh, voting for a democratic candidate as long as a democratic party is, you know, presents the face that it does now. One of the things I want to say is about my criticism at the end. I think that the president was, was first he's a neophyte and he came down as a neophyte, didn't really understand the government process. He had a lot of contempt for the government process He's not particularly substantive. He's he's very impulsive guy. You know, there's some issues that he has a very strong attachment to, and he has his, like, crime and drugs and, and things like that you know, national defense. You, you don't have to worry where he's going to end up on those issues. On other things, he can be quite erratic and impulsive. And basically, up until the election, as I said, you know, he would listen to reason at the end of the day. It took a lot of work, and it would be bruising frequently. I think overall, as I say in the book, I explain why I think 2016 was such a critical Election. I give him credit for essentially disrupting the momentum of the progressives who had picked up a big head of steam in the last years of the Obama administration. And I wasn't sure if Hillary won, whether the United States would ever be able to recover from it. And so I thought it was imperative to stop it. And he did. You know, he showed a lot of guts, and and he was willing to fight. And he stood up to the mainstream media and and the left character assassinations and so forth. And he was mistreated with the whole big lie of the Russiagate thing, he comes down to Washington and, you know, he finds himself with almost a coup in being there. And obviously that made him more cantankerous going forward. That all being said, the reason I say those things at the end isn't so much a criticism of him. It's that he may have been, he, he, he's a very, he was a very important figure for what had to be done in 2016. And he deserves a lot of credit for that. Maybe he was the only person who could put the brakes on this. But what I feel is to make America great again, you need more than one term and you need a a much more effective, substantive administration. In other words, look at Ronald Reagan. I think there's some parallels between what we're going through today and going back to that era. The 60s and 70s were a time of uh, the Democratic Party's radicalization. They had internal fights. What they did in 1976 is they put up an empty vessel, Jimmy Carter, to which both the left and the more traditional Democrats could see what they wanted to see. But they tried to finesse the divide in the Democratic Party, just as they're trying now with Biden. And Ronald Reagan, partly out of the excesses of the left, comes in, he wins 40 states. He then wins 49 states on re-election. Then his vice president wins 40 states. 12 years of direct rule, plus they controlled the playing field to the point whereby the t- Clinton was a moderate Democrat. He was the leader of the moderate Democrats, and his scope of action was very much curtailed. I mean, he had to reform welfare, and he had to pass tough crime bills. The point I'm making is that to make America great again, you need two things. You need a broad, decisive electoral victory and dominance, and you need an administration That is sufficiently substantive and has the patience and temper to keep the party together, to keep that majority, and to use it to make permanent change. And my point at the end is, whatever his strengths in 2016, and there were many, he is not suitable for that role. He is such an alienating person. He cannot have that kind of decisive victory and the leadership that's needed going forward. And as we've
1: seen, and I do want to talk briefly about these, these because you, you talk a lot about this in the book, sort of philosophical, your philosophical view, which you just laid out there and talk about. But essentially, with the, re, with the election of Joe Biden and uh, very narrow Democratic majorities in Congress, we've seen this. Presumption of this progressive march, right? The kind of the war on religion, the war on free speech, the cultural transformation, the sort of progressive transformation of the country, and in an actually an increasingly kind of authoritarian way you talk about that. So that is as much as, as Trump achieved, he's failed actually to, to he halted that march, and that was very, very welcome. But it does seem to be back, although maybe we'll see that they've overreached again, and maybe they're what do you think? Do you think I mean again you lay this out very well in the book on you know, you talk about you know religion and the, the way the progressives have attacked you know traditional religion you talk about speech by the way i was very interested in the book that um talking of cultural issues that you do capitalize black as in black american was that your own view or is that a publishing convention
2: well i discussed that with the the publisher and I said, "Well, you know, what do you want to do with this?" Because I didn't write it that way originally, but I think the New York Times does black, and I think somebody decided the journal, that journals
1: was... newspapers do do black, yeah, capital B. But I mean, it wasn't the I, I wasn't a kind of conversion to the to the idea in your in your mind. But no, I just so, what, t- tell us where you
2: think that is now. I mean, you know, you spent few, you spent two years resisting it in a much more concise way than I did. You he said what I was basically saying, which is that he disrupted and blocked for a, a time the progressive march, but he did not fundamentally change the course going forward. We're sort of back in the trench warfare again. And what I'm interested in is a breakthrough, and I don't think he's going to give us the breakthrough. But you're right. I mean, in area after area, racial relations, uh, our approach to crime, I mean, you know, crime... As I point out, you know, given my experience in the Bush administration where we adopted policies and started pressing hard on the states and set up victims groups and other groups that pushed for reform of state law, in 1992, my last year as Attorney General under Bush – Crime hit a brick wall. After 30 years of steady increase where it quintupled, all of a sudden it started going down and it went down every year for 22 years. That didn't happen by accident. That's the only time that's ever happened. And we cut crime in half over that 22 years. And the way that was done was putting violent repeat offenders in prison. That's why the prison population climbed. There's a direct correlation. When incarceration rates fall... We put fewer people in prison who are violent offenders, and you know try all these alternatives and so forth, and have endless patience for their criminality. Crime goes up when incarcerations increase, and you put those people in prison. Crime goes down.
1: Yeah, and you talk in the book about these progressive prosecutors in these big cities with their radical agendas and how much damage that's doing.
2: Right, and and that's it's they're they're going back to the revolving door policies of the 60s and 70s where crime went completely haywire. This started under Obama in 2014. And then Obama bought into this idea that the cops are the bad guys, you know, with the Ferguson thing, which was based on a complete lie. The whole symbol of putting your hands up, that was a lie. So that's where crime started going back up again. When Trump came in, boom, again, it reversed, started going down. It's not hard. To figure out what you have to do what's hard is you have to have the will and they don't have it in many of our of these big cities to take the bad guys and put them in jail it's that simple there does
1: seem to be a bit of a backlash though now against this you've seen you know with the election of glenn youngkin in virginia again you mentioned him Book, you know, with some of these school boards getting, you know, defeated in places like San Francisco, are you optimistic that actually maybe the progressives are finally overreached and that we are really going to start to see a
2: rollback? I am because, and and, and that relates to the last point I made, which is the left has overplayed its hand and on areas such as education and crime and transgenderism and, and, and you know, the immigration issues and so forth, people are getting fed up This is a huge opportunity for a comprehensive Republican victory that would give us the majority to get things back on track in this country. And that is why I'm afraid of frittering it away uh, because I think it's a huge opportunity we have. So I am optimistic in that respect. Do you think there's, a
1: again, you referenced Reagan exactly, huge majorities, particularly in 84 and then Bush in in 88, and that 12 years was a huge opportunity to turn back is the country though i do worry that the the entrenchment of the division here and the partisanship is just so great that you know the kind of this these culture wars instead of being essentially kind of resolved or at least a kind of a you know progress was finally made under reagan in terms of arresting something extreme the, the pushback from then from the left if you do try to roll this back will be so great that actually just the tension and the hostility is just too great the is just too divided do you worry about that
2: yeah i do worry about that i mean i i do think you know Number one, I, I think one of the good things, I, I think that had there, had there been, if the left had not overplayed its hand and we had another 10 years of the trajectory we were on, I don't think we ever would have been able to make it back. But I think fortuitously, I think the left has overplayed its hand prematurely. And I still think there may be enough, enough of a center of gravity in the country that we can turn back these things. The other part of the solution is to go back to basics. This country is not going to succeed. Uh, It will fall apart. You know, if we try to run it as a big, monolithic, uh, unitary state, we have to go back to some of the basic principles of federalism. It lets out the steam. It's a release. Uh, And people in San Francisco can live how they want to, Uh, but let the people in Alabama live as they want to or the people in, in Iowa live as they want to. Instead, what we do is, uh, under the democratic policies, which is, you know, one size fits all, it's a pressure cooker, and it's going to explode. The other thing is, going back to the idea of Federalist 10, you know, the Democrats are very big on talking about, you know, the threat to democracy. Well, what did the founders have to say about the threat to democracy? What the founders said about the threat to democracy was, the threat to democracy comes when 51 percent tries to lord it over 49 percent. That is, you abused the democratic process without a substantial consensus. You lord it over the other 49 percent as if they don't count. Now, who does that describe? That describes the Democratic Party, which really started in a big way under Obama with things like Obamacare, which they got through by one vote after they changed the rules to permit it to be done by, What I forgot what the name of it is, but... Uh, uh, you know part of the budgetary process. And now exactly the same thing. They have they don't even control the Senate completely. It's 50-50 and they are trying to engage in these massive restructuring of American society. That is how democracy is destroyed. And institutions we've had and the filibuster is not in the constitution, but it's sort of emerged over time as something that was meant to ensure that we don't have radical changes and swings. We move forward incrementally. We move forward when there's a sufficient consensus, and we don't tear our society apart with one group pursuing their agenda and ignoring the wishes of of a substantial minority. So that's where the threat to democracy comes. And in the long run, I think what the Republican Party has to do part of a restoration of this republic is going to involve going back to basics, going back to the idea of downsizing the federal government, of having the federal government focus on the things that could actually do and accomplish well. Right now, the federal government tries to do everything and it does nothing well. And uh, focus on foreign affairs, focus on national defense, and a few other things, and be willing to allow a lot of diversity in this country. When I hear liberals talk about diversity, it's comic because they don't believe in diversity. They believe that everything is, you know, one size fits all. And and I'm perfectly willing to allow diversity. You know, I don't care if people disagree with me and want to live the way they want to live. Let's allow diversity.
1: They, they believe in everything, uh, diversity in everything except diversity in thought. Right. Final question, General, in this fascinating conversation, I do want to ask you this. You, you, again, you talk a lot, and, and I, I remember when you were Attorney General, uh, you gave an important speech about the role of religion uh, in uh, American life, in American political life, and you made a very good point, and again, you repeated in the book, that you know for the founding fathers, religion was an essential part of, if you like, of the kind of, the constitutional settlement of the United States because it represented the source of the internal restraint on people, and when that and you, and as I think you quote, I can't remember which one of the founding fathers was now who says that that is, you know, it's when that fails that the state is necessary to impose the external restraint. But as you say in the book, organized traditional religion is rapidly declining here, both in terms of people who believe and observe and, and go to religious services. If that's true and if we are seeing this increasing secularization and this increasing um, to sort of agnosticism if you like or turn away from religion how do we handle it if that internal restraint is going and, and is disappearing what is the right the right role for the state in those circumstances to exercise some restraint
2: um, well I, I have a whole chapter on this on this topic and, and you and you're right I mean the thing that people have to understand is that the separation of church and state is actually you know not to keep religion in a ghetto. What it did was it said, it was a fundamental move. It was a Christian idea, obviously going back at least to Christ, uh, saying render under Caesar and render under God. And then throughout the Middle Ages and so forth, there were the two different spheres. And the whole idea that there's a religious sphere that has competence and authority over education and the moral formation of people and telling people what is the right way to live, It pulls the state out of there and then it permits the limitation of state power. So the whole idea of limited government depended upon the idea of an active and vibrant religious sphere. Now, the religious sphere appears to be crumbling. And one of the problems here is that the state, it's not that the religious sphere is moving into the government's sphere. It's the opposite. It's the government is stepping in and trying to teach isms and other metaphysical bases for values uh, as alternatives to religion. In other words, once in the middle of the 19th century when people said we should make education universal, the public should pay for it, there are two ways to do that. One is the way that Europe ended up with, which is to allow people to pick their schools and as long as the schoolers are credited and teach reading, writing, and arithmetic, it's okay if they're religious schools will pay the tuition that's in England i i think it's funny that you know people fled england for religious liberty and yet if you're catholic or muslim or hindu or church of england you can go to a religious school and it's paid for by the state same now in the most secular country in europe france but here the schools first it was basically christianity and then in 1960 they basically tried to strip christianity out and then since Obama's administration, it's been a secularization by addition. They're trying to put in alternative value systems, and that is aiding the erosion of religion. At the end of the day, I'm not sure that the state can promote a religious reawakening and rekindling of religious feelings, but they can certainly stop operating against it and allow parents to send their kids to schools that are more sympathetic and more conducive to religious belief and don't affirmatively operate against religious belief. But right now, for a parent to do that, they have to pay through the nose, and they shouldn't have to. And I think the Constitution is implicated here. For the government to say, you have to send your kid to school, and you can send them free to this school, but if you want to get away from the school, you have to pay through the nose. And in this state school, we're teaching your kids that they get to decide their gender, and they're more than two genders, and no one can tell them what they are. Now, that's antithetical to you know traditional religious belief. And if the price of going to the state school is that they basically subvert traditional religion, there's a constitutional issue there. If if religion isn't
1: there for increasing numbers of people, and that what you describe, again, is that internal constraint that's important in the moral formation, people isn't there. Where does that leave? I mean, as you know, there are a lot of conservatives who believe that liberal democracy has essentially failed or failing, in part because it has encouraged this kind of almost sort of nihilistic, materialistic um, you know, we've lost track of ideas of the common good and all of this stuff, and we've actually become a just a sort of desensitized society and that liberalism in the classical political sense of it has failed. Do you think that – and that's partly tied to the decline of religion, but people also see that in this, you know, globalization and the loss of community and all of these kind of things that, that they associate with modern liberal capitalism – Obviously, I take it you don't think that, though, but what does restore that kind of moral dimension to our lives if it is steadily disappearing?
2: I think the same thing that eventually brings people back to sensible law enforcement or immigration policy or anything else, once they try the alternative, they see it doesn't work and eventually there's a reawakening and a reappreciation. I think the history of philosophy for the past couple of hundred years has basically been trying to gin up some metaphysical system that supports morality other than the Judeo-Christian tradition. I don't think there is one. I don't think it's possible because unless something is rooted in some transcendent truth, then there's no reason for people to accept it or observe it. So it's dependent on anything dependent on man's will uh, rather than some will that external to man will, will not be binding and will not be honored. So it's been a dead end. And you look around at the fruits of this uh, in our society, and you can see the crumbling of of Western civilization. And, you know, as I said uh, to a group of... African-American uh, pastors uh, a couple of months ago. Judeo-Christian uh, religious tradition is the last stop. There's really nothing, I don't think for the West there's anything beyond that other than barbarism, eventual barbarism. So I feel that you know once you get the state out of the act of pushing some kind of state secular humanism as an alternative to religion, and you allow families to raise their children and pick schools that are suitable to them. I think that, and don't have to pay through the nose to do that, I think there's a chance of rebuilding a more traditional culture based on religious values here in this country.
1: That's a very good note on which to end. Thank you very much indeed. William Barr, the book is One Damn Thing After Another, Memoirs of an Attorney General. And as you heard from that conversation, it's not in, not all about Donald Trump at all. There's uh, fascinating observations on um, on these issues and many others, and including a lifetime in the law. So, William Barr, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you very much. Well, my thanks to William Barr. That's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, of the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Make sure, please, to listen next week and to subscribe to Free Expression wherever you get your podcasts. And please also listen and subscribe to Potomac Watch. Uh, which is now Monday to Friday, also from the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal for discussion of contemporary politics and the state of the world. In the meantime, thanks very much for joining us. Hope you listen
0: again. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore.